Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. And I just want to kind of start off and ask this question. I'm wondering, how does a person measure uh, a worth or value of something? So think about that for a moment. How does a person measure their worth or value of something? I think it's really interesting that there are some people who are willing to pay so much for something that's the same. What I mean by that is you could buy something that's similar to that thing, but it's cheaper. And one of the things that we forget is that sometimes we end up buying more of a brand and a name brand, even though they're equivalent. Like for some of us, when you think about electronics, why do people pay more for a laptop? Why do they pay more for a phone? Uh, with a logo with a half-eaten apple on it. I, I don't know why. If you think about it, there are better things that are in terms of comparable, in terms of the power and the memory and the processor, but we want to spend more money on that because of the brand. Now think about even clothing. Why do people pay, uh, pay so much more for just a simple plain white shirt? Because there is a brand that is tied to that. And what is the reason? The reason is because of the perceived value of that thing, the product, whatever it is. And so comparing it side by side, there's no difference. But it's the perceived value of one over another that many of us have this proclivity to want to have that rather than having something else that's cheaper and of same quality. Now, if you think about something uh, that has value then the question is, are you willing to pay for it? And I think this is something we'll always have to ask ourselves. If we value something, are you willing to pay for it? And this is how marketing and advertising works. What they're doing is they're trying to sell you a lifestyle. They're trying to sell you an image. This is the reason why sometimes, even though they might be same products, one product will cost a lot more because they're trying to sell you a certain kind of image or lifestyle. I wanted to show you this quick video, and many of you who are not from the States or maybe from out West, you might not know this, but in every country there's these stores and that are cheaper than the name brand stores. For instance, uh, there's a store in the United States called Payless, Payless Shoes. And so these are just decent shoes that are just no brand, but the Payless brand. And the thing is that it's, it's interesting because the quality might not be as good as some people will say, but in terms of design and the fashion, it might be very similar. And the thing is that if you watch this video, they decided to do a social experiment. And the social experiment was they decided to turn Payless and create a store that had this really fancy looking name and this fancy looking outfit into the whole area. And they were trying to fool some of these fashion influencers on social media. And I want you to watch this video because they kind of documented the social experiment that they did, and they made it into smaller commercials. But this one was, brought, uh, was noticed by some of the news outlets, and so they're going to give a little bit of an explanation of what happened. And I, one of the things I want you to do is watch the response of some of these fashion influencers and how they're trying to promote the shoes. So let's... <laughs> Just wondering how, if some of you would have fallen for that. 
I mean, think about it. These fashion influencers fell for it and thought that it was a really expensive shoes, 500 USD. Uh, some of them were willing to pay 800 USD, but they're only $35. And so once again, the point that I'm trying to make is that there is an, a value that we ascribe to something. And it's a perceived value. And this is how the world operates. They tell you that this is something that's valuable. This is something that's worth it. And so we buy into that whether it's through marketing or something that our parents have told us or maybe something that we've thought about. And so in that perceived value, what we do is we're willing to pay the price for that thing when you realize in actuality that it might not be very expensive and it might not even be worth it at the end of the day. And as we think about this, I think one of the realities that we have to come to this conclusion is that in this world, so many things have been turned upside down. The things that are eternal, things that we should value, are the things that we have turned around and said they're not that important. And the things that are temporary and the things that will fade away, we put those things as the highest pursuit in our lives. No wonder there's so many of you who are struggling. You're struggling emotionally. You're struggling mentally. You're struggling with so many different things in your life because what we have bought into is a value system and a perceived value on something that will never fully satisfy. Some of you have been chasing after so many things in this world, and you have been exhausted and tired. So many of you think to yourself, if I could only have this, or if I could only reach this level, or if I only could get to this place, then somehow I'm going to be more satisfied, more happy, and somehow bring greater contentment. And one of the things you're going to realize is that it won't especially if it is not things that are connected to not only God's kingdom, but also things that are temporary that are only lasting here on this earth. This is the reason why Jesus, throughout all of his teachings, constantly reminded the people of this kingdom value. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It says this, don't store up treasures. And it says here, I want you to repeat this after me, here on earth. Where moths eat them and rust destroy them and where thieves break in and steal. It says, store your treasures where? Come on, say this. In heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So once again, we talked about this several weeks or about a month ago when we were in this one desire fast as we talked about the theme of treasure. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart is. What you value, the things that you desire so much, is where your heart is at, and that's why you will pursue after it. Some of you, it's about success. That's why look at your life. Everyone can tell it is all about success because you prioritize things, your life, your time, everything that you relationship is all about success. And I'm telling you right now, wait until you receive or you achieve success and you still feel this aching pain in your heart that you're so empty. Some of you might say, if I could only get that into this relationship and just wait until you do and you realize there are so many things that are messed up about you, so many things that are messed up about uh, that other person, and you're going to struggle and it's not going to be fulfilling the way you thought it might be. I'm not saying relationships are bad, but if you make that the ultimate, you're going to be disappointed. 
That's the same way with some of you who are students, who are studying. You think if you got a certain GPA, you think to yourself, if I could only get that internship or that exchange program, then it's going to help me to get a job. I mean, it might, but I've known people in the 25, 30 years of doing this, there are a lot of people who stacked up their resume but couldn't get a job. There are others who didn't have much on their resume, but somehow God opened that door. So once again, you realize that you're not in control. But you could definitely tell what it is that you're pursuing after because of this perceived value in the things that you're chasing and the things that you're pursuing after. I'm wondering if this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to love Jesus with everything. It's because we want anything else other than him. Listen to what William G.T. Shedd said. He's a theologian from the 19th century. He wrote this. Man here below lives so entirely among sensible things and meditates so little upon spiritual objects that he comes to look upon that which is spiritual as unreal and upon material things as the only realities. For most men, houses and lands and gold are more real than God and the soul. Yet the invisible God is more real than any other being, for he is the cause and ground of all other existence. It was an invisible mind that made the material, uh, material chaos from nothing and brooded over it and formed it into an orderly and beautiful cosmos. The invisible is more firmly substantial than the visible. What a powerful reminder. And this is what we see in our lives. The things that are eternal, the things are, that are lasting, we, we discarded them. And the things that are material, the things that are here now, the things that we can see, touch, and feel, we make that to be the ultimate reality, and it's not. This is the reason why so many people in this world are where it's at. I mean, think about everything that's going on around the world. You will never have a perfect government. You will never have a perfect nation. But people are trying to get to a place where they feel like as if somehow they can figure all this out. We can't. Because this world is all temporary. It's going to come and go. Presidents will come and go. Different executive directors will come and go. But one thing that remains and stays steadfast is Christ. And things that are eternal, that are related to the kingdom of God. So this morning, I want to talk about that. And just this understanding of God's love has to be so immensely rooted in us. So that out of that experience, then we can then say, God, here is my life. And with everything that I have, especially living in this temporal world, with everything that I have, I want to use it for eternal purposes so that even though that I pass away, there will be things that will continue on beyond me. And so the one thing that I want to share is simply this, that we give our everything in gratitude when we know God's love in its magnitude. So once again, we give our everything in gratitude when we know God's love in its magnitude. Welcome back, and we want to get into the message. And before we do, we want to close out this conference with a story that I think many of you are familiar with. It's a story about the woman who broke the alabaster jar of perfume. 
And I think this is a very significant story as we think about everything that we've learned in the last day and a half. And we want to be able to bring some closure to this and say, God, with everything that I have, it's all yours. And we want to serve you, honor you, and glorify you. This story, those of us who know it, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a, a, a video. And those of you who don't know the story, uh, you'll be able to see this in a visual way. And so we're hoping that there will be a freshness to this because it's a little bit of a, more of a dramatization about the story of the sinful woman who broke the jar, alabaster jar of perfume. And then we'll get into the two points as we're talking about how we, out of this gratitude of our hearts, we're going to be able to then love and serve God um, just because he loved us in this great magnitude of his love for us. So we want to be able to give ourselves to him. So let's watch. What a powerful reminder. Sometimes instead of just reading it, you've got to watch it and see it and see this woman who came humbly and broke the alabaster jar of perfume. Uh, today, I want to talk about that one thing, that we give our everything in gratitude when we know that God's love in its magnitude. So I'm going to highlight two things here about this story that I think will help us to respond to him in light of everything that he has done at this conference. And I pray that this will encourage us and to even inspire us to live our lives in such a way, not only out of gratitude and thankfulness, but just because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, that he's worthy of everything that we have. The first thing that we want to look at into this story is the realization of our sinfulness, a realization of our sinfulness. Before I read the story, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page because there are other gospel accounts about a woman breaking the alabaster jar of perfume. You'll see this in John chapter 12. You'll also see this in Matthew chapter 26. And it's important that we understand that they are two separate stories. And so the ones that are in the other gospel is about Mary of uh, Bethany. And so that's why that story might sound similar, but it's different. This is the story of a sinful woman who broke the jar, uh, alabaster jar of perfume. So I'm going to go ahead and read Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 39. We're going to look at that portion of Scripture first as we talk about this realization of our sinfulness. This is what the Word of God says. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city, excuse me, let me, um, let me read it one more time from the ESV. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's home or house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Let's pause here and look at this passage together. Uh, these verses set up the stage for a lesson that Jesus ends up teaching to those people who, are, who fail to understand their own sinfulness and their own wickedness in their hearts. In verse 36, we notice that the Pharisee, whom we later realize in verse 40, that it was Simon, Simon the Pharisee, and he invited Jesus to have a meal. 
Now, let me just say this. There's, there's many reasons why this Pharisee might have wanted to do that, whether to kind of get a little bit closer to this Jesus who gained popularity. Maybe he was just doing it to find out what more he's up to because he was a Pharisee and part of that religious group of people. We don't know why, but all we know is he invited Jesus to come into his home and have a meal. And then in verse 37, it says a woman... And this woman here, she heard that Jesus was at Simon's house. And so she decided to come in person to see Jesus at Simon the Pharisee's home. Now, this story, as it begins to unfold, is a contrast between two people and their attitudes as well as their responses to God or to Jesus here. So I want us to pay attention as I look at that two contrasting attitudes. The first one is the sinful woman. As we're talking about the realization of our sinfulness, we look at the sinful, sinful woman. Now, in verse 37, we, uh, she was simply referred to as a woman of the city who was a sinner, it says here. And this probably meant that she was a prostitute in the community. When it's kind of referring to a woman in the city or of the city, uh, she was probably the one that everyone knew because she was the prostitute. Now, I'm just, I'm just wondering how many of you, do you know what that feels like to have a bad reputation? I mean, it's one of those things where it dogs you, it follows you every single time. Why? Because if someone knows you for something, everywhere you go, that is your reputation. And if you have a bad reputation, you know how painful and alone that you feel. Sometimes you might feel this rejection or even your own insecurities without even knowing that people are not even talking about you, but you assume that they're talking about you because of the reputation that you have. So here's this woman of the city, and it highlights that she's a sinner. And can you imagine in that condition, she comes in to see Jesus. Now, in verse 38, we see the woman's action at this very moment which was very unexpected, not only for Jesus, but it was unexpected from Simon, who he, this was his home, and she comes in, she stumbles in, and she does something that completely throws them all. Now, if you look carefully, you will notice here that she stands behind Jesus, it says, and that at his feet, and he, she, here she is weeping and wiping the tears with her hair and kissing his feet and anointed them, with the ointment. Now, the reason why this action shocked the people was because for a, a woman during this time to let down her hair or let go of the covering was very shameful. So here she is in front of these people in public. She's completely letting down her hair and wiping and crying at the feet of Jesus, kissing his feet, it says, and she poured this expensive oil or perfume at his feet. But what I want you to notice is this, and this is where we're going to contrast with the sinful woman along with Simon the Pharisee. Every single one of her actions, when you watch this carefully and see this carefully, you will notice that it's a level of humble submission and gratitude to Jesus. Now, this hints at the fact that the woman probably encountered Jesus before. Now, we can only speculate because we don't see it very clearly, but for her to come in this humble submission and a heart of gratitude with tears flowing from her eyes, wiping the feet of Jesus, all we can assume is that she probably encountered Jesus sometime prior to this moment. 
Now, we don't know when, but she probably heard about forgiveness of sins and about the kingdom of God and about repentance. If you remember, that was a message that Jesus preached wherever he went from town to village. He would preach that message. Therefore, here she is wanting to express her gratitude for the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that she received that she knew that she did not deserve. I'm wondering, when was the last time out of gratefulness or gratitude to Jesus, you did something and you gave your best to him? See, one of the things that we're trying to encourage all of you is that we don't try to do things to earn something from God. It's because it's already been done to us where we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we have received grace and mercy. That's how we respond. So I want you to think about it from a different angle. When some of you hold on to things that you don't surrender to God, when some of us say, you know what, I like my comfort and my laziness more than Jesus and the kingdom in light of all that he has done, that what that shows you is that you don't understand the grace and the forgiveness and the love of God deep enough. Now, if we were to take a test, I think all of you will be able to answer these questions correctly. But there's a difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge that comes through experience. And the problem with so many of you who've been to church all of your life is that you've heard the message of the gospel about the cross over and over again. After a while, it becomes a broken record and it doesn't move you anymore. And the problem is for some of us is because we're still wrestling and struggling with sin. And there are things that we're not experiencing transformation. So we begin to become more cynical towards the things of God. Is this really gospel really good news? Can this gospel, does it really have power to transform me? Look at me, I'm still struggling with the same thing. You, you, you think this way, and after a while, you will be hardened in your heart. And so even though you know about the gospel, you don't know it deep enough that it doesn't move you to respond. You don't give your best to God. You don't want to serve. You don't want to love people. And so here, this woman, clearly in a humble submission, all her actions shows that she is grateful to Jesus for what he has done. And forgiving her, maybe she saw a healing when he was teaching somewhere, and she realized that this man, the rabbi, has power. And she put her faith and trust in him and in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to talk about Simon the Pharisee. And this is where we're contrasting between the sinful woman, and Simon the Pharisee. It's interesting that in verse 39, Simon knew that she was a prostitute. I don't know how, but we just know that he knew that she was a prostitute. Now, this is why we have to be thinking to ourselves, or why he was thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who's touching him. See, here's Simon thinking this. He didn't say it out loud, but he's thinking this. And he is more concerned about this woman touching Jesus rather than what she's doing, which is a beautiful thing where she is putting on ointment and she's weeping and wiping his feet. In fact, it probably bothers Simon so much that Jesus, who is supposed to be this holy teacher, is allowing the sinful woman to touch him. Now, those of you who might not know, in the Jewish custom at that time, if there's an unclean person who happens to be a prostitute or tax collector or those who have a, a sinned, whenever someone is in that person's presence, even a disease like leprosy, you are then unclean. 
And so these, these guys probably freaked out and said, Jesus, do you not know who she is? I mean, he didn't say it out loud, but he's thinking, if this guy's a prophet, he should know that this woman is unclean. So by allowing her to touch him, he has become unclean. This is what he's thinking. And I'm even wondering if Simon started doubting if Jesus was really this rabbi, this holy teacher, this prophet. What we see is that Simon was blinded by his own sinfulness. Let me unpackage this a little bit. See, when you compare, as we talked about at this conference, as Pastor Brett was mentioning, that when you begin to compare yourself to other people, you're not going to get a good assessment. Because there are some of us in our church, when you compare yourselves to everyone else in your life group or anyone else in church, you just feel good about yourself because you just know that you're better. For whatever reason. Oh, I don't do that kind of stuff. Oh, look at this person. This person's not serving. Oh, this person's really lazy. They, they don't even turn on the, a camera when we're on Zoom. Like, shame on them. You know, they're probably laying down and just not even paying attention. They must be sleeping. Like sometimes when we compare ourselves with other people in our church, in our life group, we just feel better about ourselves because we think that we're more holy. There are some of us on the other extreme where we do compare, but we compare with other people and they're, in our minds, they're more holier than us. They love God more. And look at me, I, I, I can't do all the stuff that they do. And so then you just say, you know what, then maybe I shouldn't do these things. So once again, whether it's pride of overestimation of yourself or pride, which is insecure pride, because you're focusing on the wrong things and makes you even smaller in a negative way, we see here that the comparison is the very thing that is blinding Simon to see his own sinfulness. But this is where you have to compare yourself to God. Regardless of who you are, when you compare yourself to God, you just realize, God, I'm sinful. I've fallen short of your glory. There's wickedness in my heart, not just in terms of what I do externally, but the things that I think about, my attitudes, my judgment of people. That's why if you remember in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, that story about that Pharisee going to the temple to pray, and he saw this tax collector. Do you remember that story? I'm going to read it from the message translation, so I'll give you a little bit of a different angle to this. Listen to what it says. He told you, he told his next story to some who were, what, complacently pleased with themselves. I like that. Think about it. I want you to look at me for a moment. So what happens is when you're proud, you get complacently, what, pleased with yourself and with where you are. That's how I know when you somehow allow pride to get into your life. Because you're complacent. You think you're okay. I'm not that bad. Life is going great. Life is comfortable. That's why you got to watch out for complacency in your life. If you don't have a hunger for God, you don't have a desire to serve God, you don't have a desire to love people around you, you don't have a desire for wanting to live according to His Word, you have no desire to read the Word, you have no desire to pray and to fellowship, and the only time you come to that realization when things are hard. That's why I'm wondering if some of you who are struggling right now with things that are outside of your control, it's God's loving way of trying to break you. It's God's loving way of trying to wake you up out of your complacency, of your lukewarmness. Because what happens is that when we get really spiritually proud, 
then we get complacently pleased with ourselves. And what was he complacently pleased with? It says here in the next phrase, it says, over their what? Moral performance. See, once again, all the things that I'm doing, that's the spiritual pride. And then it says, and look down on their noses at the common people. So then Jesus says what? Two men went to the temple to pray, one of Pharisees and the other tax men. So once again, comparing, contrasting. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this. Oh God, I thank you that what? I am not like other people. So once again, looking at other people, comparing, contrasting. Oh God, I'm not like them. Robbers, crooks, adulterers, or uh, heaven forbid, like this tax man or this tax person. I fast twice a week and tithe all my income. Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy, forgive me, a sinner. What do we notice? He acknowledges his own sinfulness. He noticed that he'd fallen short of God and the standards of God. He doesn't compare himself with other people, but he looks at God and realizes, have mercy on me. I've fallen short. I'm a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, went home what? Made right with God, which is justified. We've been talking about this in the book of Romans the whole time. To being justified before God, not by what we do, but it is what God has done for us. And then it says, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. Isn't it interesting that once again, that the woman's sin was visible and more external, but Simon's sin was more internal where people could not see. Now listen to me carefully. One of the things that will kill your soul and lead you to spiritual pride and complacency in your pleasure of yourself is that a lot of times you sin not so much externally, but internally. We study this in the book of Romans. This is the reason why Paul says, and he used out of the 10 commandments, he used the last one, do not covet. Because covetousness is something that we cannot see, but it's in the heart. There are some of you right now that you might live a perfect life or what it seems like a perfect life. But it's the things that are going on in your heart and in your mind that Jesus Christ will judge you by. And I think this is the thing that is so difficult in Asia. Listen to me carefully. Because in Asia, it's all about saving face, looking good in front of people. This is the reason why we have so many spiritual, prideful people in the church in Asia. Because it's all about saving face. We don't want to look bad. But the problem is some of us are bad and we know it, but we're trying to cover it up. But other people can tell. You could try your hardest, as best as you can, to try to cover up. But it's going to slowly start showing at the seams. We're going to know. Because people are like, why is he reacting that way? Why is she like that? 
no matter how much of titles and positions you have, no matter how often you serve and do all these great things for God, but what's going on in your heart is it's not been transformed by the gospel message. You're still operating on the human paradigm. And that's why this is something that has to be constantly addressed. It's not what you do externally. I've seen so many people who are righteous externally. They do all the right things. They come to the right meetings. They always answer the question when it's asked. They know all this stuff. It's all about them. They're covering up. They're saving face. But the question I'm always asking is, what's going on in here? So here's Simon who's thinking this. Oh, my God, the sinful woman. Oh, my God, does does Jesus, if he's really a prophet, does he know who's touching him or her? This woman who's touching him. So he's judging. He's sinning in his heart, in his mind. No one sees besides whom? Huh. Jesus. And the next point I'm going to talk about is what he reveals. So I want us to pause here for a moment and think about this. I'm wondering, do you see your shortcomings? And do you quickly turn to God? Do you, do you have this realization of your sinfulness? I think if we're really honest and without anyone around in the room and we just look ourselves in the mirror, we will all say we're sinful. But then you add people there, then that's when we start covering. Are you more like the sinful woman or Simon the Pharisee? I'm wondering what prevents you from responding with gratitude and offering yourself to God. Maybe for some of us, it's because we have not fully realized our own sinfulness. Because if you don't realize that, you're not going to have this great need for forgiveness and mercy from God. Then you're going to be complacently content with where you are. And that's why your life hasn't changed. That's why this Christianity thing is not working for you. That's why you go through the motions of just reading the Bible, but nothing's happening. You're trying to pray, but you don't feel like praying. You go to life group, but you know deep inside that's the last place you want to be because you had a hard, long day. You have no desire to go and start giving of yourself and to serve. A realization of our sinfulness is one of the first steps to be able to say, God, with everything, in gratitude, because I'm I'm understanding, I'm knowing more and more about your love and in its magnitude. We want to close out with the second point. And the one thing that we've been talking about is that we give our everything in gratitude when we know God's love in its magnitude. The more you understand his love, the more you're going to be able to give out of this thankfulness of your heart. And we see this in the story as we contrast the sinful woman and Simon. Now, I want to get into the second part, and this is the part that's important, because Jesus uses this moment as a teaching moment. So as there's a realization of the sinfulness, but Simon didn't realize how sinful he was, we now see a response to God's forgiveness. That, that, that is the second thing that we see in this story is that there is a response to God's forgiveness. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 40 through 50. This is what the Word of God says. And Jesus answering said to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a powerful conclusion to the story. What we're noticing is, just try to go back to from the beginning. She comes in. Everyone's freaking out. What is she doing? Simon is sitting in his mind thinking that, who is this woman? And if Jesus knew he was a prophet and he knew who was touching her, he would not have allowed that. And so we see this woman in response, in this gratitude. And here is Simon who's blinded to his own sinfulness and starts judging. Now, why is this important that we talk about the second part of this? that there will be what? A, a response to experiencing God's forgiveness. Now, there, there are two things that I, I want us to, uh, he's telling this parable, the story, because he, he realized, okay, this is what Simon's thinking. In light of everything that's happening right now in the room, in the moment, this is what he's thinking. So I'm going to teach him so that he could understand that in order for him to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he needs to see his own sinfulness and then through the forgiveness that can be offered through Christ, through myself as I'm going to die on the cross, he wanted to help Simon to understand. So there are two things that Jesus communicates through this parable. Two things. The first thing is this. Gratitude will be expressed. Gratitude is something that will always be expressed. Now, the story about these two people, he begins to tell that they were in debt. One had 500 denarii debt, and the other had 50 denarii. Now, those of you who might not know the counting units or the money term back then, a denarii was about a whole day's wage. So let's calculate it according to Hong Kong dollars. So pretty much if you're making about 20,000 Hong Kong dollars per month, not a year, but per month, then if you do the math, if you work 40 hours per week, Okay, I, I hope I'm getting this right. Then per day, roughly, roughly, that means that it is $1,000 Hong Kong. So do the math in this. So you multiply 1,000 to 500 denarii or 50 denarii. So you get the figure. And the important thing is what we see in verse 42. We notice that they could not pay. The debt. So what did the money lender do? Out of the kindness of his heart, we see the story. Jesus is telling the story. And what does he do? He cancels the debt of both. Not the one with the most or not the one with the least, but both. Then the question is asked by Jesus. 
Now, which of them will love him more, the moneylender? Which one will love the moneylender who canceled both of their debts more? Now, let me just pause here before you know the answer. We already read the story, but I want, I want to pause here to help you to understand this. The question, now, which of them will love him more? That phrase, love him more, can be translated as which one will be more grateful? So now if you look at it again, here's Jesus talking about this money lender who canceled these two debts. One was 500 denarii and another one was 50. And he's asking which one will what? Not only love him more, but which one will be more grateful? Because it's about the gratitude. Of course, all of us know the answer to this. The greater the debt, the more grateful we are. And so that's why I think Jesus told the story because it's not only about how much, who will love him more, but who will be more grateful with gratitude in their hearts because this idea of forgiving debt is the same context in which we are debtors to God. Every single time you and I, we sin, we are withdrawing. We are lending from God, if you want to look at it. And our debt is constantly compounding. Every single day, a thought that you have, a speech that you have spoken, an action that you do, or a sin of omission where it's just something you should do, but you don't do. So every single day and every 24 hour that passes, our sins begin to accumulate. This is our debt. And then we know the gospel because Jesus Christ died on the cross to cancel our debt. He has forgiven us. So the question for us is a question that Jesus is trying to ask Simon. Who do you think will love or who do you think will be more grateful? It's obvious. Those of us who understand that we're sinful or those of us who have sinned a lot. When we know that our sins are forgiven, our debts are canceled... Those are the people who will love God more, and those are the people who will be more grateful. So do you understand why a heart that is not grateful, it reveals certain things in our lives? And I want you to get this, because this is so important. I mean, I've tried to say it in so many different ways. I hope that you're getting trained in this so that you can have an eye to pick this up in other people, not to judge them, but to guide them and counsel them and help them in their spiritual journey. Whenever you see a lack of gratitude in a person's life, it reveals two things. I, I, this is just my humble opinion of what I've experienced in all my thousands of hours of counseling. The first thing I would say, the reason why whenever I meet someone who is not grateful or don't have this heart of gratitude is that because they feel entitled. That's the first thing. The second thing is they're just unaware. Those are the two reasons why they become very, very ungrateful. Now, underneath that bigger umbrella, you could call it self-centeredness, whatever you want to call it. But those two things of entitlement and unawareness, I think those two things causes people not to have this grateful heart. Let me explain a little bit more about this. When you feel like you deserve something, that is what? Entitlement. 
So if you feel like you deserve something and you get something from God or people do something for you, are you going to be grateful? No. What are you going to be? Finally, took you long enough. Do you see what I'm saying? You're not going to be grateful. On the flip side, when you don't get something that you feel entitled to, what do you do? Complain. Get frustrated. You start gossiping. That's why all these things are traits of a person's heart. It's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but it's what comes out. That's why I'm always listening for speech. I'm listening for attitudes and how they're responding to different situations. A person who is entitled will not be grateful. Because when they do get something from God or there are other people are serving them, they're going to expect it that they should do, do this for me. Or if they don't get it because they feel entitled, they start complaining, they start arguing, and they start getting really upset. You've met those people. Please pull out a mirror and you will know who they are. You, 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 all of us, pastors included, we have this sense of entitlement that is so easy for us on a daily basis to lose the sense of gratitude. Here's another reason, as I shared. It's a lack of awareness. Some of us, you are clueless. And that's why we love you. That's why sometimes we walk with you. We try to say it nicely to you. Because you are so unaware that when someone does something for you, you're like, oh. And so you don't understand that they're doing it out of the kindness of their heart. You don't see it that they're doing it because they love you and they care for you. Someone has to tell you, hey, they did it because they really love you. Oh. And so that's when you start to understand, oh, they did it because they didn't have to, but they sacrificed. And because of that, I'm grateful. So sometimes you're unaware, you're just your lack of awareness hinders you from being grateful. Some of us are unaware because we don't even know when we're complaining. We don't know when we don't see God working in our lives because we just don't, we're not aware of these things. So listen to me carefully. As we're talking about gratitude, if there's a sense of entitlement or you are not aware, those two things will hinder you from being grateful. So here's Jesus telling this story because he is trying to help people to see that gratitude, when you have it, it will always be expressed because you, you are not feeling entitled because you realize you're undeserving. And then you are aware of what Christ has done for you. The second thing that I want you to notice here is gratitude will be expressed, not only be expressed, but I want you to see here that generosity will be enjoyed. Jesus continues to explain the parable to Simon and others who are there when they're listening. And Jesus explains almost like step by step what happens from the moment he walked into Simon's home. And this is the part I love about Jesus. I mean, he's Jesus, so he has a perfect memory. But when someone has like a perfect memory, they kind of go by step by step, you're like, I'm guilty as charged. I mean, there are times I'm, some people are like, Pastor, your memory is horrible. Sometimes my wife will say, like, you don't remember that. Oh, my God, that never happened. All the time. I'm like, really? Like, sure it did. But some of our memory is not great. Some of us, we have incredible memories. That's why when people are like, remember when this happened and then this? And then I'm like, oh, yeah. And that's when the realization happens. And so here we see that Jesus 
begins to give us step by step of everything that happened, frame by frame, chapter by chapter, page by page of what happened from the first moment that he walked into the home. I don't know what you, but this is like stripping you naked. You're like, ah, 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 because like, oh my God, every single thing he remembered and everything that he was saying, I did not do. The point that Jesus is trying to highlight, listen to me, this is important. The point that Jesus is trying to highlight is that Simon didn't even do the bare minimum of washing the feet's guest and giving him a kiss in a greeting. Simon did not go out of his way to host Jesus with a special welcome. But in contrast, this sinful woman lavished her love and devotion upon Jesus because of our heart of gratitude. When you are not grateful, then you do not have this generous heart. Whenever I meet generous people, I realize that they're humble and they're grateful for what they have. And that's why we have to keep in mind that the sinful woman anointed Jesus' feet with ointment, which is an expensive perfume, and it cost the woman almost everything. You know, when we think about our relationship with Christ, we love to count the cost. I want you to think about this for a moment. But the problem is, we count the cost, but we're not willing to pay the full price that God wants us to pay. We only pay just enough. I don't know about you, but sometimes you go out to eat with your friends, and then you're split, splitting the bill. And then, you know, you give the money, and, you know, maybe it's like $2, Hong Kong dollars. And people are opening up their little pocket, you know, pocket change and go, one. Oh, hold on. I have 50 cents. Two 50 cents. That equals one. We're like, we're like so precise. I'm just like, keep the $2. <laughs> and then maybe next time we go out to eat, then you pay a little bit more. Now, some people are like, oh, gosh, pastor is really upset at me. No, listen. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is this. I think for some of us, we count the cost to the exact dollar, to the exact cents. And we're going to go right here, and we're not going to do any more because it's going to be too much for me. But then we don't want to do too less because people are going to judge me. So we just, just, just do it right there. Exact. And can I just say this? That is not generosity. When you're calculating to the exact penny, I'm telling you, that is not generosity. I'm not saying be foolish with your money and say, hey, who wants to borrow money? Anyone? I don't even know how much you gave. I gave to you. <gasps> yeah, then go ahead. No, that's foolishness. You're not being a good steward of your resources. But what I'm trying to say is that every single one of us, we count the cost. And many of us, when you don't have this sense of gratitude and understanding the gospel, we will calculate just enough. And I, I was thinking about this this whole week, and, I, and I'm, I'm the latter portion of this week. And as I was thinking about this, something that came into my mind was this. Oftentimes, when we calculate the cost, we always calculate what we will lose here on this earth. Oh, my gosh, I have to give up my summer. Oh, Lord, I might have to give up that whatever it is. Oh, does that mean I have to give up my, I don't know, jiu-jitsu? 
like something that I love? I don't know. Do I have to give that up? I mean, how, how about my Netflix? How about So what happens is that when you calculate the cost, you're always calculating in terms of what you will lose here on this earth. This is important. I want you to listen to me. This, this is something I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us about. Every single one of us, we calculate. We count the cost in a lot of things. But for many of us, we calculate what we're going to lose here on this earth. This is the reason why you calculate to the exact and just do enough so that you won't look bad in front of people, but then you're not going to push yourself and go beyond and be, have a generous heart because God has been so lavish on you generously. You're just going to just do enough to get by. And the reason why this is important is because the focus is on the wrong cost. Listen to me. You're focusing on the cost of what you're going to lose here. When you count the cost, you should be counting the cost in terms of what you will lose with Christ. Can I get a good amen to that? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? All of us calculate what we're going to lose. I'm going to lose that internship. I'm going to lose my GPA. I'm going to lose that promotion. I'm going to lose this. It's all about things here. But you haven't thought about what you will lose up there in your relationship with Christ. That's why in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, listen to me. In New Living Translation, Jesus is speaking as he's talking about the cost of discipleship. And then he says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Do you hear what Jesus is trying to say? Because when you think about what you will gain here on this earth or what you will lose here on this earth, you are forgetting that there might be things that you may gain in eternity. There are things that you may lose in light of eternity if you make decisions that is only about the here and now. Some of you are going to miss opportunities to grow spiritually. I don't care. Well, that's on you. Then that's your spiritual life that you don't care about. Some of you are making decisions that you're going to miss opportunities to bless people. I don't care. Well, that's your loss. So we're calculating things. We're counting the cost and things. It's only about what we gain and what we lose here on this earth. You have never thought about what you will gain and what you will lose in eternity. Let me give you an example. Sharing the gospel with somebody who's struggling or maybe someone who's a pre-Christian. You think about what you're going to lose. I'm going to lose my face. They're going to think I'm weird. They're not going to be my friend. You see, you're thinking about what you're going to lose here on this earth. How about you think about what you will lose in heaven? They're going to go to hell. You're going to struggle in your conscience because you had an opportunity to share, but you did not. You're living in disobedience. And that for your relationship with God would be struggling. What if you start thinking that way? I'm wondering if that would radically change some of your decisions in your life. Because all you're thinking about is here on this earth. What I'm going to lose. What am I going to gain? How many of us honestly think about what we will gain and what we will lose? One of the response was going on a missions project. 
You're thinking about, oh my God, I won't be able to get a job. I won't be able to do an internship. You're thinking about what you're going to lose here on this earth. What you will lose in heaven is you're going to miss these opportunities to grow in your relationship with God, to understand God's heart for missions for the lost. Those are the things you're going to lose. If you could change your mindset, I'm wondering if some of us, our decisions will be so different and your life will be radically transformed. That's why some of you always pick the higher paying job. Because it's about what you gain. Even though the work environment is worse there, but you get paid more. Here you are, you're building a relationship and some of these people you're ministering to, but you're not going to get as paid much as there. Do you see what I'm saying? We calculate every single time. Sorry, I'm getting too excited here. I'm passionate about this. Because I want to see all of us in our church to love Jesus. I'm still struggling to love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want us to do this together. This is how we're going to transform the world. Dallas Willard, just an incredible writer. He talks about the cost of non-discipleship. Same concept. He wrote it in the book called The Spirit of Discipline. It's a great book if you want to read it. Listen to what he says on page 263. It says this. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, Faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is after all an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and loneliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. The correct perspective is to see following Christ is not only as the necessity it is, but as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life in the highest plane. What a powerful quote and a powerful reminder. That the cost of non-discipleship, not to get discipled and to grow, you're going to forfeit, as we've seen in this quote, this abiding peace, this life penetrated by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding uh, governance for good, hopefulness you're not going to have. You're going to lose all these things, the power to overcome and do what's right. You're going to lose all these things. When you calculate and you only think about the here and now and the material world, you're going to lose all these stuff. That's why I want to challenge you when you're looking at your life and you have no motivation, you have no sense of hope, you have no sense of love, you're not, wanting, you're not experiencing this abiding relationship with Christ. It's because possibly you have failed to count the cost of not doing these things, of following Christ, that now you are going through the things of no hope, no love, no faith, no power. Because you keep on choosing the things of this world. And sometimes what God does, he tests us to see if he's enough for you. 
Is he really your treasure? Is he really your joy? Is he really your security? Is he really your hope? That's why he's testing us. Because he's telling you what the cost is. That's why when you look at Jesus' teaching, it is phenomenal. It is radical. He says, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself. You want to follow me, you got to deny your mother and your father. He even used strong language. Hate. Why is Jesus doing that? It's because he's giving us the cost of what it means that if you do not follow, you're going to miss all these things. You're going to forfeit these things. So here's Apostle Paul. Do you remember? And let me close with this thought. Here's Apostle Paul. Talks about losing everything to gain Christ. Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. It says, I count ev- indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the, lo- the loss of all things and counted them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen to the message translation of that verse. It says, yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to what? Come on, say this with me. High privilege of knowing Christ Jesus. It's a high privilege. As my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ then how do we then surrender all? How do we then give up everything for Christ? How do we count everything a loss? Let me give us a couple things here to think about. First thing is this, make Christ our highest priority by choosing him. Every single time when there's a choice, whatever and whenever that God is calling you to do, choose him above all other things. The second thing is this, make Christ not only our highest priority, but make him our highest pleasure by choosing him. That simply means that when we know the things of this world is fleeting, that we fully satisfy, and it will never fully satisfy, we turn to him, we choose him. This is not going to satisfy, it might satisfy for a little bit, but I'm going to need higher doses, I'm going to need more of this. That's why you get diminishing returns. The more you play video games, you think it's exciting until you play enough, and then you're like, oh, God, you're, you're drained. That's how it is with drug, whatever it is, that you need higher doses because your body gets used to it. So choose Christ as your highest pleasure. Spend time with him. Get to know him more. The third thing is this. Make Christ our highest purpose by choosing him. Anything that deals with the purpose of living for the kingdom of God, choose that. That's what it means to give everything. That's what it means to count it all at loss. And lastly, make Christ our highest pursuit by choosing him. Make him the highest pursuit by choosing him. More than anything else in this world, Lord, I'm going to pursue after you. That's how you live a life fully surrendered with everything. And say, God, here it is. So the one thing, once again, is that we give our everything in gratitude when we know God's love in its magnitude. I'm going to give us quickly some next steps here. First of all is this, marinate often on God's grace. Think about it. Let it sit in there in your mind, in your heart. Do that on a regular basis. Get up in the morning and say, God, I thank you for your grace. Go throughout the day, and as you're going through the business of life, just pause and say, God, I thank you for your grace that I don't deserve anything. I should not even be here alive today. But because of your grace, because of your mercy, I'm here. Let it marinate in your mind. Meditate it on your mind. 
constantly and see your attitude change, see how your perspective starts to change. The second thing is this, monitor how you relate with others. Are you grace-giving? Are you, are you able to love them? Because once again, in gratitude, you're going to want to love people. You're going to want to serve people. You're going to start complaining. You're going to stop complaining and say, God, I choose you. You're going to stop comparing. And you're going to say, God, I choose you. So monitor your relation with people. There are times when some of you are too involved in people that you don't have time for God, so they become your functional God. Pull away once in a while. Some of you are in codependent relationships. It's not healthy. You can tell because when that person is that you're collapsing. That should never be. Your relationship with God, that's the most important relationship. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't love people, but it should be your relationship with Christ. And third and last thing is this. Measure your generosity by the cross. Think about what Jesus did and what he has given to us by dying on the cross. And then measure that generosity that you have in your life with that. God, I'm not entitled to this. Why did you have to die for a person like me? God, I'm not unaware anymore. I, I, I'm aware. I see the cross. I see my sin. It humbles me. It breaks me. 